Welcome to The Emergent Human, where we explore optimizing health and body spirituality and post-conventional living. I'm Michael Osterlink, a therapist, coach, and educator, and I'm your host. Shout out to my colleagues, Dan Cirillo and Chris Smith at Spartan 7, which is leading the way in executive protection, tactical and mental readiness training, and continued rehabilitation support for veterans. You can learn more at www.spartan7inc.com. Today's show is brought to you by Cosper Scafidi, an amazing body worker in the Northern Virginia area who's integrated different somatic practices into his work, including rolfing. To learn more about his work, you can visit his website at cosperscafidi.com. Today's returning guest is Brent Gleason. Brent is a Navy SEAL combat veteran with combat tours to Iraq and Africa. Upon leaving SEAL Team 5, Brent turned his discipline and battlefield lessons to the world of business and has become an award-winning entrepreneur, best-selling author, and acclaimed speaker and consultant on topics ranging from leadership and building high-performance teams to culture and organizational transformation. Brent's new book is entitled Embrace the Suck, The Navy SEAL Way to an Extraordinary Life. Good to see you, Brent. Good to see you, brother. Thanks for having me on the show again. Yes. Welcome back. It's been a while. Congratulations yeah. on the new book. Thank you very much. So I thought we'd start by uh, embracing the suck with two shitty experiences that you had in combat, <laughs> which is kind of a nice entry point to this conversation. We're just getting real right off the bat, huh? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, I share a couple, and, and as you've, you've read in the book, uh, obviously I try to, you know, there's some intense moments, but also some moments of, um, uh, of levity and uh, self-deprecating humor, uh, so to speak. But um, there were, uh, uh, on one particular deployment uh, in Iraq, um, we were uh, hitting a, uh, a target, looking for a uh, high-value target HPT and a, a weapons cache in a rural area outside of Baghdad. And we had... Uh, used uh, Helos as an insert platform. We're planning on vehicles coming in and uh, being the ex extract platform. And so we landed uh, about one and a half clicks out and we moved into the target that had multiple buildings uh, on the property uh, in a skirmish line format. So we spread out and we move you know, online through clearing structure by structure as we go. And uh, my fire team was you know, on the east side and we were moving towards a structure that was in front of us. And we were moving into formation to uh, stack along the, the, the main door to this small building. It was a, a farm uh, type of uh, property that we were hitting. And I was so focused intently on, you know, scanning for threats and you know, <laughs> keeping my weapon trained on the front door as we moved uh, in formation uh, to make our entry that I didn't see, uh, see the, uh, what was in front of me. And I stepped and fell right into a cesspool. So I went right waist deep into a cesspool uh, that was about uh, two to three meters off the, the wall of the building. And uh, so literally like a few minutes into the situation, we were already uh, in a very uh, shitty um, uh, outcome, so to speak. But yeah, so that was, uh, the, and that was the beginning of a very long evening. Uh, we cleared the target. We had some problems getting off target. We rolled a Mercedes G-Class that we borrowed from one of the three-letter agencies into a ditch. We had to pull that out of the ditch. It took so long, we got stuck in morning rush hour traffic on the way back to our base. And so I was wearing <laughs> crap-covered clothing, uh, uh, you know, for, for basically the entire night. So uh, then there was another... Uh, deployment where 
uh, we were going to hit a large apartment building and I had had a horrible, a lot of guys would get sick either from food poisoning or just from other elements that, that uh, from where we were. And I had a horrible stomach virus. I'll spare you the details, but, you know, but bad fever and, you know, the, the stomach issues that go along with uh, that type of situation. And um, oftentimes we hit these targets, we use an explosive breach. So uh, you're standing very close to a decent amount of C4 uh, uh, to make an explosive breach in these targets, uh, mostly through, through a doorway. And I wonder why traumatic brain injury is an issue these days, but that's a whole different story. And um, the, the impact of that explosion <laughs> was so strong that it uh, forced a secondary explosion. <laughs> Again, right at the beginning of the op. So I was like, why does this keep happening to me? But those are a couple shitty situations that I did unfortunately share in the book. <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I wanted to have you tell the stories, and obviously I'm going to encourage folks to actually read the book, Embrace the Suck, but it's quite telling of your ability to stay, as you call in the book, frontside focused, embracing the suck no matter what, and being on mission. And I think that, you know, I just wanted to share with people, like, you know, if you're able to do that as a human being in those kind of really shitty, ex shitty experiences, you know, that, that like, that's the elite level of functioning. But you also tell stories. It's not just like, you know, the elite guys, like you know, operators such as yourself, but you tell stories about a researcher that I'd like you to tell more of the story who explored resilience of kids who come from really tough backgrounds. You tell that story as part of the whole kind of embracing the suck mentality and why it's important for us to know about these stories. Yeah, that, you know, one of the things I've done in both my books is I like to really delve into the research because it's it's fun to storytell and it's fun to, you know, develop some of my own philosophies, but really doing the research and taking a fact-based approach to um, elements of resilience and grit and mental fortitude was quite fascinating. So delving into the behavioral science, the psychology behind it, not just the stories of tough people doing tough things or yeah. creative people doing creative things, but what's the real brain, you know, brain science behind it. What's the psychology behind it all? And one, and this actually came from um, an element to uh, uh, some of the leadership development work we do at Taking Point Leadership, but there was a professor, uh, Garmezzi, and he was one of the first really, uh, you know, notable um, studiers, so to speak, uh, of the, the, the philosophy of resilience. And so I started off the book in part where I'm sharing that some of his research that began with him studying cohorts of children uh, across different schools. So, uh, you know, the concept was go into schools and find children who, and ask the questions, they'd sit down with the principal or the principal and a, a, a school psychologist and ask them about children, you know, not asking them, do you have any problem children here in your school? They'd be like, well, of course we do. <laughs> the question was, do you have children that come from essentially troubled you know, personal lives or home lives that yet have somehow thrived in this environment academically, socially, creatively, who are essentially well-rounded child leaders uh, of their peers. And that was where the research began. And one particular child uh, that, that popped out was, it's kind of the story of the, what we call the boy with the bread sandwich. And he, you know, had a single mom, situation. Uh, she was schizophrenic, alcoholic, drug addict. So clearly had no real adult uh, uh, support, emotional support, financial support, <laughs> any type of support at home. And, uh, you know, they didn't have the financial means to have, you know, healthy food in the house. So every day he would show up 
with a brown paper bag with two pieces of bread and nothing in between, just a bread sandwich. And yet, for whatever reason, he was so naturally resilient that he did not want uh, the other children to know, you know, how bad things were at home. And he wanted to project, you know, um, you know, positivity uh, in his life and, and to those around him. And so he never, you know, said, hey, <laughs> we don't have any real food at home and my mom's too incompetent to actually make me lunch. And yet every day he'd show up with a smile on his face. He thrived academically. He thrived in extracurricular activities. And that's kind of where their, their research began. But it goes to show that, especially when we're studying the concepts around uh, mental fortitude and, and resilience, that it, uh, it's not a matter necessarily of you have it or you don't. It's not a matter of coming from extreme adversity or not. And, and that's resident, I think, throughout the book is that people from many different backgrounds, uh, <clears throat> healthy backgrounds, unhealthy backgrounds, uh, have overcome extreme adversity in their early stages of their lives, haven't really had extreme adversity in early stages of their lives, yet in those moments, uh, some people find the, uh, the mentality and the foresight to, uh, to navigate those obstacles um, you know, more quickly and then come out the other side uh, mentally and emotionally more mature than, than they were before. You know, and speaking of uh, kind of behavioral sciences, you also tell you tell a story, which I think is really interesting and, and not surprising to me because I'm trained as a therapist, but kind of surprising that in the overall embrace the suck, like mental toughness, gung ho approach is like from an evolutionary biology, biology or psychology perspective, like that, that our emotions are adaptive and it's important to actually experience them as opposed yeah. to like repress them, which is, you know, like I, I would imagine a lot of people out in the hinterland would think, oh, embrace the suck. Don't feel your feelings. Repress your feelings. Control your feelings. But you're actually suggesting that at certain times, yeah. it's important to actually feel the feelings. Can you talk a little about that? Absolutely. And that's kind of the dichotomy that I like behind the title. You know, it's yeah, yeah. sort of there, it's got a military theme. It's not a military book necessarily. You know, it's it's we got some seal stories, but it's not a seal book. And the title is Embrace the Suck, but the philosophy of Embrace the Suck, obviously born in the military and embraced heavily within the world of special operations. Essentially, it's not just about, oh, just suck it up. You know, you got to be tough. You know, you got to just, you know, push away those emotions and forge ahead all the time. That's not realistic. That's not healthy. And you'll go much further faster as an individual in your personal life, your professional life, in your relationships and how you come overcome adversity when you can develop emotional intelligence and build self-awareness and understand your emotions, how you react in certain situations, how your emotions impact others, especially from a, a leadership standpoint. Obviously, we teach that a lot in our development programs and social management and relationship management and all these things that are important to be successful, however you want to define successful in life, both in your you know, business career or your professional career or your relationships, your marriage, parenting. All these things are obviously very intimately connected and in, in the military philosophy, embrace the suck really isn't just about toughen up, get it done. It's about acknowledging uh, the obstacles that are in front of you and not just accepting them, but finding ways to lean into it, finding ways to move more quickly from that. We'll call it to stick with military terms, that bunker of normal human emotion. You're a therapist, you understand obviously the, the stages of grief, so to speak, um, that can be very dramatic and, or smaller depending upon the obstacle uh, we face. We all know that now more than ever over the past 14 months. Um, but moving more quickly from that bunker of normal human emotion um, of, you know, of the, you know, the 
the anxiety and the depression, but in more quickly into acceptance, but also into taking stock of the current situation, uh, focusing on what's in your control, deprioritizing the rest, developing a mission plan with contingencies, and then stepping back onto the battlefield of life more quickly, as opposed to sometimes when we get stuck in that causal thinking of why me, why this, why now, we waste time, energy, and emotion on things that are wildly out of our control. And we're not getting anything done. We're not making it better for ourselves or for others until we can uh, gain acceptance faster and use that knowledge uh, and that emotional information, so to speak, to develop a plan and move forward. That's awesome. So uh, emotional intelligence, social intelligence, intelligence, which you just kind of walked through a little bit. Another piece of your book that you talk about is mindset. And obviously, the you know, for argument's sake, we can separate emotions and mentation and talk about them separately. But, you know, we know for the brain sciences, they're integrated together. Yep. But talk about like the fixed mindset versus the growth mindset and what you see in the world in terms of fixed mindset, in terms of clients you work with over time versus growth mindset and how sure. we move people from one to the other and why it's important sure. to do so. And, and yeah, that's another thing. Uh, Carol S. Dweck's philosophy on fixed versus growth mindset. Uh, that obviously resonates well uh, when developing leaders and talent in organizations is understanding where they fall in that spectrum and how to move from that fixed mindset mentality into more of a growth mindset. Again, another thing that can be developed. These are skills that can be developed through intentional practice. You're not one or the other. Uh, you can kind of start off as, as one or the other, but learning how to um, you know, tackle certain circumstances and lofty goals and overcome obstacles, you will develop more of a growth mindset. So the fixed mindset is what it sounds like. I am who I am. My talents are my talents. My skills are my skills. Flaws are my flaws. Um, effort's not really important because it's not going to further my ability in X, Y, or Z. So this is it. <laughs> this is where I am <laughs> in the world, in my life. And this is who I'm going to be. A growth mindset is also what it sounds like, as you well know, where uh, we believe that challenges aren't just inevitable, but they're necessary for personal growth, for personal development, for professional development, for gaining wisdom and, and foresight and, and um, perspective on um, the world around us. And so, you know, people with a growth mindset typically seek out uh, harder things to do. They seek out and pursue loftier goals. And when they achieve those goals, they move the goalposts and do it again. So they're in a constant state of improvement. They're never satisfied with the status quo. They crave and accept feedback from peers. And then most importantly, they apply that feedback to continuous development and improvement. That's a growth mindset. It's critical for leadership. And it's critical just for engaging in meaningful relationships for tackling goals in your personal life or your professional life. And, you know, and also being able to impart that type of um, mindset and wisdom on others. What, what do you do when you work with clients to help them, first of all, see that they have a fixed mindset? Because I would imagine a lot of people might not even know that they operate that way. And are there certain exercises you might do to help them move from fixed to more of a growth mindset? Absolutely. I mean, we, we try to take a 
not to overuse this term, but a, a data-driven and insight-driven approach to how we develop programs and how we engage uh, teams and leaders, whether that be in a group setting or one-on-one. Uh, but, you know, I've always been a big fan of uh, peer reviews. So uh, your typical, uh, we have a custom 360 model that we use. So for those listening or watching who don't know, that's where, let's say, I as a manager in an organization would have uh, a cohort of peers, probably my boss, peers in a similar level to me in the organization and my direct reports uh, anonymously rate me based on a series of different questions and the type of insight and data we're looking for, uh, basically rate me on my performance. Uh, We do this in SEAL training where we weigh heavily peer reviews um, and to teach that team ability and that mindset around accountability and discipline and looking out for the person to your left and right. Because like in SEAL training, for example, when when students fall in that bottom echelon uh, in those peer reviews, it's not because they're not the fastest runner or swimmer or best shooter in the kill house. It's their attitude. It's their mindset. It's uh, they lack the ability to put the team's needs before their own. They're in it for themselves. They haven't moved from, okay, individual exercise. No, this is a, a team exercise. And the same thing applies, obviously, in a uh, organizational setting where the first thing we want to do is show leaders, here's the baseline of where you are right now. And again, 360s aren't necessarily based in fact. They're based in perception. But again, the old perception is reality philosophy. That's the same thing and true in an organization where the most important um, element of uh, feedback to use so that I can develop as a leader is from those that I lead or from those that are leading me. And from there, you can create action plans to understand a few key areas where you, you, know, you want to develop uh, as a leader, as a manager. And that might be in uh, you know, managing Uh, difficult relationships or being better at having those critical conversations or leading and managing up, whatever those areas are where the collective group feels that you could, uh, we'll call it a development opportunity (laughs) as opposed to a flaw. Um, That's where you start. And then of course you can design different programs and scenarios and and learning modules around, uh, you know, and, and experiential learning and classroom learning and different projects they can implement to, uh, to, develop and most importantly, measure uh, the outcomes of their improvement. Let me ask you this, you know, because you went from the teams to the corporate space. And I'm wondering, in the teams, I would imagine, you know, high levels of accountability, honesty is expected, you know, no bullshit. I can't imagine that in most corporate, in the corporate space, like high levels of accountability, honesty are, are the norm. How do you yeah. bring that in? I could imagine like, you know, if I'm an underling, I'm afraid of my boss. I don't want to say something critical of him because it might affect my future raise or promotion yeah. or, you know, whatever. So, but which is like, so how do you deal with the different culture that you find in the workspace versus on the teams? Right. The yeah. And again, having had the, the honor and privilege of, you know, serving and being led, serving with and being led by some of the most phenomenal people I've ever met. And, you know, my contribution, you know, to Naval Special Warfare pales in comparison to so many of my brothers who are literally some who put me through training, who are still in the team, still fighting the fight. And, and I still learn from them. I, I still, uh, you, know, you know, follow what they do and read their books. And um, writing a Forbes article today on Mike Hayes' new book, Never Enough, phenomenal book. Uh, there's a leadership component, but there's a personal development component about excellence, agility, uh, and, you know, living a life of meaning. It's a, it's a phenomenal book. And um, in doing so, I was reflecting on, uh, you know, how did I bring some of those elements, uh, mainly things that I learned from others, 
uh, in the teams and bringing those into creating high functioning teams in the business world as an entrepreneur. Uh, not as easy as I thought for some reason, <laughs> but ultimately it comes down again, <clears throat> leadership is always the problem and it's always the solution. Uh, and creating a cultural environment, for example, whatever that culture needs to be to, to support the purpose, the mission and vision of the organization and what they're trying to accomplish and the products and services they're trying to deliver to their customers. But creating a cultural environment uh, that attracts great talent, retains great talent, that develops talent, that in, has engagement strategies to keep people uh, measurably uh, at their peak performance. Uh, and therefore that drives retention of customer and that drives profitability uh, and growth and sustainability in an organization. Now, of course, and I touched on this in the article, the you know, emotionally connecting to the purpose and the why in special operations is relatively easy, it's simple. Complete the mission, protect my teammates. You know, there's a lot of underlying things there, but two, but you know, the two most fundamental things is mission success, protect my teammates. And obviously in the business world, connecting everybody in your organization and engaging everybody in your organization behind the purpose of, of the widgets that you're selling or the services that you're putting out there to generate revenue and shareholder value is difficult because there's not that deep, like, wow, mission success, purge the world of evil, fight the enemy. Uh, this is, well, we're selling this service or we... We're selling these bicycles or whatever the widget is that you're selling. There's still ways to enhance engagement. Uh, employee engagement, not to go too far down that path in most organizations, is, is pretty low. Still, just in a, in a well-run organization, about a third would measurably be what we would call engaged. Like all in all the time, go above and beyond. They're your A player, high performers. You know, they, they, they're connected to the mission. They understand the purpose. They live the core values, whereas everyone else is passively or, or even actively disengaged. The active disengaged are more of the agitators and they kind of, for whatever reason, work against the organization, especially during times of change. So one of the things that I, I what I know now is mainly from a long line of extremely costly mistakes <laughs> that I've made as an entrepreneur. For some reason, mistakes always have a monetary value assigned to them, as you know. But it's, uh, it's really comes down to leadership and building an appropriate culture and bringing people into that culture and developing that talent and finding ways to retain that talent. And the more you focus on those activities, as opposed to sales and your financials and your operating models, those things typically will take care of themselves. Uh, when an organization fails at change or fails in certain areas, it's not necessarily because of ill intent or the operating model is flawed. It's, it's usually people issues, um, disengagement and uh a lack of alignment, uh, unclear messaging around the vision from leadership. It's all people and behavioral uh, as opposed to, you know, deep tactical operational things most of the time. So th those are the things that I've learned. If you, if you focus on your people practices, focus on your culture, uh, then the rest typically takes care of itself. You, uh, you mentioned uh, expensive uh, lessons learned over time. <laughs> and, and one of the many things I really appreciate about you in reading your books is that you're pretty open and honest about your own. Like, you know, you, you kind of lay it all bare and like, oh, I can see how Brett learned this lesson over time. Because <laughs> I just want, you know, I don't necessarily have, want you to go into any of those stories. I just want to appreciate you for yeah. being so transparent. That's, that's awesome. You mentioned some of your, you mentioned how you learned from a lot of your uh, former and present day team guy friends. Um, one of them is David Goggins, who's did the forward for your book. 
And in terms of uh, growth mindset, he talks about do something that sucks daily. And you talk about that in the book. Yeah. And I'm wondering if you could just share some of the things that you might recommend to clients, whether it's in the corporate space or maybe if you work one-on-one with people, wherever it might be, of things you might suggest. Oh, why don't you think about doing X, Y, and Z to really develop your capacity to embrace the suck? What might that look like? And, and, and yeah, so just for, for the viewer, listener, David and I, we went through buds together. So for those who know David, which probably are most of your uh, audience, uh, retired SEAL, world-renowned ultra athlete, among many other things, high motivator, millions of followers, phenomenal book, can't hurt me. So he classed up with us, class 235. We were his third class. And, um, and then he graduated with 235 with our class. And then he and I both went to SEAL Team 5 together uh, upon graduation. And uh, David obviously takes growth mindset to a whole, a whole different spectrum that most of us can't even understand. And but what's what's interesting about that dichotomy is that uh, you know David did come from um, extreme adversity, uh, a physically and emotionally abusive household, childhood obesity, um, you know ups and downs when it comes to the financial environment, racism, um, and then and that that bled all the way up into his teenage years and his early twenties. Uh, quite frankly, until he made it into uh, into the Navy and into the SEAL training pipeline. He'd been in the Air Force, had some success there, then regressed back. And it's uh, but, but in comparison to maybe others who have done the same things in the special operations community and gone through the hardest training in the world, but didn't necessarily come from adversity. That's what's fascinating to me about uh, the resilience, as we were talking about before, is where does it come from? You know, why do some people have it and some people seem not to or two people from very different backgrounds and life experiences both have it, but, yeah. but why? And so when engaging and embarking upon this project, I thought who better to write the forward about a book about resilience and grit than my buddy, David. And so, uh, so he did. And, um, and, and I, you know, obviously thank him for that. But um, when we, when we think about, uh, you know, his philosophies around doing something that sucks every day, it's, it's interesting. Mike, well, it's actually pretty not that interesting that Mike, the Navy SEAL commander, has a similar philosophy. And he talks about, you know, you know, doing the hard things, like I touched on briefly before. And again, it's not about doing something that sucks for the sake of doing something that sucks. It's not about teams and leaders doing the hard thing all the time and taking the risk just for the sake of doing the hard thing and taking the risk. It's about being calculated and being intentional in your practice based on the goals you're trying to achieve. So the philosophy of doing something that sucks every day means, okay, here are a set of goals that I'm trying to achieve, personal, professional, what have you, or here's an obstacle that I really need to overcome, or here's my marriage over here that is failing miserably and I desperately want to save it. Any lofty goal in many of those three categories is going to have adversity, stress, anxiety, and pain and suffering associated with it. Otherwise, it's not that lofty of a goal or it's not that big of an obstacle. And I focus a lot in the book, as you know, on goals. Uh, so professional goals, personal goals. I use a lot of fitness analogies because that's you know visually easy to, to understand for a lot of us. And so let's say you're going to run a marathon for your first time. Or let's say you're David, you're going to run 100 miles for your first time when having never run a regular marathon. Well, obviously associated with that lofty goal, there's going to be a list. And I provide a model in the book make a list of those, those threats, those blockages, those obstacles, you know, will be associated with successfully achieving that goal. Then prioritize that list of threats and obstacles. Take your top three and practice those things with intention, whether that be through um, getting outside help, a coach, a mentor, 
whatever that is, or, you know, doing the research and figuring out what you're going to do on your own, practice those things with intention. It's a big difference there, you know, practicing and intentional practice so that you can become better. You know, one of the things I've struggled with as a leader, which seems kind of surprising people are like, well, you, you struggle in that area, having been SEAL and in combat and is, um, is conflict avoidance. <laughs> so you know, it, on the battlefield, I will happily run towards the sound of gunfire, but in an organizational setting and sometimes in a relationship setting, I'm like, Oh, I don't want to have the hard conversation. I don't want to eat, deal with the angry client or the pissed off board member. So I kind of like deprioritize those things on my to-do list. I'm like, didn't get to that today. I'll do a Thursday, or maybe I'll delegate that to someone else. Now, again, delegation. Well, we can talk about that later. That's an important skill. But for me, it wasn't true delegation. It was just because I didn't want to do it when I'm the person who's supposed to be doing that. So, my point is, I know that's something I struggle with in being an effective leader. And so, I've made a point to not only get feedback through 360s and and my own coaching mm-hmm. and mentoring and and from my own peers or my own employees and teammates is, okay, where do I fall short in this area? Any advice you have on what I could do better here? And then start practicing that on a regular basis. Tackle those issues head on and do it a little bit incrementally, whether it's every day or every opportunity you have. And then it gets easier and it gets easier like anything else. You get stronger mentally in that area. And then it's not a, then it's not a challenge anymore. And then you pick the next hard thing and you do the same thing and use that model to uh, strengthen your mind or your body or whatever uh, the goal is in improving in those, those areas that you suck at or that you don't like doing. And if you do that on a regular basis, your comfort zone expands. Have you always been personally open to feedback? No, no, I haven't. So, <laughs> so like for you, you know, as, like, as an exemplar, like someone's watching this going, well, yeah. I kind of suck at you know, maybe I suck at giving feedback, but I like, I don't like to give, I don't like to receive negative feedback. I get defended. I get defensive. I don't, I can't hear it. You know, so for you, what might you recommend? What was your own process that, Oh, I went from not being open to feedback, whatever that means to you to like, I can, I can accept feedback. Even if it's critical. Just doing it. It's funny because <laughs> I have my own accountability partner is my wife, or at least my first accountability partner. She's always like, Brent, you're not practicing nice. what you preach right now. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> and, you know, whether it's accountability or, you know, I, I'm avoiding conflict. It's like, just do uh-huh. it. It's not going to be as bad as you uh-huh. think. And it never is. Yeah. And that's another thing about conflict avoidance is typically when you deal with it head on, usually the problem's not as big a problem yeah. or it's not as scary or it's not, it's, it's you're telling yourself that it's going to be. And then of course you fix the issue faster other than letting it fester and become cancerous. And then you have a much bigger problem to avoid. <laughs> I mean, tackle. Uh, but it, it's, my, my first experience in it was, um, I mean, we all have obviously feedback. We get feedback from parents or from peers throughout our life or college or what have you, um, or coaches, you know, in the sports and, and things like that. Um, but really thinking about it from a, a totally new environment, like in the SEAL teams, you get plenty of feedback, very transparent feedback. Uh, one of the things I love about uh, our rituals and mechanisms for accountability is our, our after action review or debriefing process. And part of that process is creating an environment of psychological safety where essentially you leave rank and emotion at the door. You come in as equals and you debrief. You talk about what we did well, what we could do better. And everybody takes ownership over where they could improve. And when you see that in a cultural environment, let's say, let's say the mission went sideways in a catastrophic way. And we're talking about, well, whose fault is this? How many hands do you think go up in the room? Like every single hand. 
because you have a cultural environment where people are taking total ownership over where they feel they could have done better when there's plenty of blame to go around. And maybe it was really just one person that kind of screwed up if you put it in that context, Mm -hmm. but everybody has an opportunity to have done it better. And so when I started my, my first company, and this is where we as leaders uh, in the business world or entrepreneurs get this wrong is no threats on the horizon. We're tripling in size every year. The customers are happy. Shareholders are happy. What could possibly go wrong? So we're not looking for the threats on the horizon. So we don't have a resilience model or contingencies to fall back on when a global pandemic hits or 2008 housing market implosion, you know, destroys the economy. And um, so one of the things that I realized through, I think it was through some coaching and I was part of an organization called Vistage. It's kind of like YPO, but a little more (laughs) business focused in the sense that we only focus on, you know, our businesses and things like that. And there was a recommendation around the 360 process. I'd never heard of it. You know, I knew about peer reviews and those mechanisms. So anyways, not to go over that again, but I decided we should start doing it in our organization, even though things were going great. So really just as a supporting element to how great I was as a leader, I just wanted to see it on paper at a report. (laughs) Well, that's not exactly how it turned out. (laughs) Surprise, surprise. I remember we started with just the senior leaders. So just the founders and C-level execs. And I printed this thing out. It was one of the more robust 360. It was like 50 pages of stuff, of awesome stuff that I was going to read. I got on a plane from San Diego to New York. I had printed it out, super old school, got my highlighter ready to go to circle the areas of greatness. And, and I started reading this thing. I was like, huh, okay. First, and the comment section is where they get real specific, you know, where they really dig in, sometimes in a good way, but sometimes in a constructive criticism type of way. And I was reading things like one was, you know, I was a CEO founder. What does Brent actually do all day? That was one comment uh, that stung a little bit. I was like, they clearly no one. Who's this idiot? You know, he's getting fired. And <laughs> <laughs> that's why it's anonymous. And, but other things, important things like what is the company vision? What's our mission? Like, do we, do we have a defined culture, core values? Uh, what's the strategy? You know, we were just churning and burning. We were selling and bringing in revenue. No real vision, no foundational elements of culture or values or things like that. Uh, Again, first time out of the gate, we had raised money. So we had shareholders who didn't give a crap about that stuff. They just want to see shareholder value. They wanted to see sales going up every quarter. They wanted to see profitability gradually increasing through operational efficiencies, blah, 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 blah. They didn't care about any of the other stuff, nor they ever ask about that stuff. Shareholders typically don't anyways, but you know, the good ones do. And so that was my first, uh, eye-opening experience with getting feedback uh, as a leader. And after the tears and eight more cocktails on the airplane and the quivering and crying in the fetal position of my seat, I eventually manned up, embraced the suck, and I immediately put a presentation together. So I took all the most important things, especially wow. the gaps and, the, and the, 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 what you might call it, the, uh, the blind spots were things that had really popped out where I was like, wow, I did not see that. Because in a 360, you, you rate yourself too. And so what you want to look at too, or where are those blind spots where your, your rating of yourself, <coughs> excuse me, and the ratings of others is vastly different and, and where you're rating yourself higher than they're rating you. And so I put a presentation together mainly to say, here's what I heard, you know, am I hearing what you want me to hear? And in part, you know, here's the action plan of what I'm going to do to get better as a leader. And if the more you do that, and then we did it again, six months later, 
to see where those incremental improvements are. The more you do it, the more comfortable you get with it. And then eventually uh, you crave it. And the best leaders I've ever seen mm -hmm. out there don't just accept feedback. They crave it. They ask for it. They always want to know what they can be doing better. And good for you and uh, good for your employees for being honest and sharing with you. Great. <laughs> really I was so yeah. thankful. <laughs> yes. Uh, you mentioned values and you do have a section in the book, Embrace the Suck, where you do talk about the importance of values. And I think it'd be great if you wouldn't mind talking about the, the story, because you mentioned marriage before. There's an interesting story you tell about a guy who had different priorities when it came to revenue and his marriage. And that might be a good kind of entry point into the values conversation. Yeah, and, and we see this a lot through, you know, friends and peers and colleagues or our own experiences where, you know, you even the most well-intentioned people oftentimes think they're doing the right things, but either haven't really clearly defined their own set of core values. And I would say that's a vast majority of people um, mm -hmm. uh, or have done so, but it's inauthentic and they don't live by those values or make decisions by those values or engage in building relationships based on those values. And the philosophy in the book is, well, if high performance teams in the military and uh, excelling business organizations do this and the most successful people in the world out there live by a set of core values, well, why, why shouldn't we all do that? And the story I mentioned was a, you know, a guy, we'll call him Jeff, uh, that I used to know, again, successful in his own right, entrepreneur after grad school, built a couple of companies. Um, and he was, but he was putting everything having to do with the growth of that business and quite frankly, very money driven. Um, so it's for his own personal financial gain. Uh, that was the, the priority as opposed to his, uh, his family. So his wife and their young child at the time. And we were having a conversation one day because he was complaining to me yet again about how crazy and angry his wife always is. And I think she's bipolar and she's always yelling at me about the little things like I didn't take the trash out or I didn't fix the drawer in the kitchen. She asked me 50 times. And so I was listening, but also just trying to absorb and maybe think about it from her perspective because we've all made these mistakes and, and you know, have the wrong priorities sometimes, even, even well-intentioned. And well, I asked him, I was like, well, you know, totally understand where you're coming from, but you know, what's... What's your plan? Like, what are you going to do? Like, you can't do everything. You know, we can't be all things to all people at all times. So we have to have priorities. And, you know, the whole philosophy of being all in doesn't mean you're all in on everything. If you try to be all in on everything, you're all, you're not really in on anything. <laughs> you're just mediocre at everything you do. And he literally said, verbatim, I will prioritize my marriage and family once this organization hits X level of revenue. Like it was a business model. <laughs> I almost fell out of my chair. And I was like, wait, tactical pause. Say that one more time. You're going to start focusing on your marriage, like spending more time together, maybe even going to some counseling therapy. Once the company hits this ridiculous revenue mark, that may never happen, probably won't even ever happen uh, based on what I know. And he said, that's right. And just like took total ownership over the crazy comment that he made. Well, not surprisingly, about a year later, they were engaged in a very emotionally and financially costly divorce process. And the, that business never came anywhere near uh, that, that revenue uh, mark um, and was later sold for its debt. So it's just, it's one of those things where if you, but what can we learn though? Again, mm -hmm. he was well-intentioned and he's definitely learned from those experiences and has found new success and you know, remarried and great business. But he definitely looks back and says, wow, <laughs> just like we all do in certain areas of our life where we mm -hmm. make catastrophic mistakes. Why didn't I see that coming? Or why didn't I behave differently in that moment? Why, was, why did I think that way? 
And, you know, again, the more we can apply that and think about, you know, what our values are and make decisions based on those values. Mike writes in his book, you know, as a leader, I totally agree with this and I've written about it. Every decision we make as a leader, whether that's with your family or your business or as an entrepreneur, should be based on a set of values that, that the team understands, that you articulate well, that's authentic, that you actually live by on and off the battlefield. And when you do that, you're going to be in line with uh, your purpose, your why, what you're trying to accomplish. When we don't, and I've made this mistake before, we deviate based on the values of the organization, for example, because of a revenue opportunity or a shiny object over here. It, in my experience, never works out and typically costs you more time, money, people, and resources when you deviate from an aligned set of core values. Let, let me ask you about values because when I, when I coach clients, one of the things I have them do is articulate their values. But I ask them to, to go from very abstract, 30,000 foot view, like, oh, integrity, honesty, compassion, care, whatever those values are. I'm like, and I say, I don't know what the fuck you mean by that. I, <laughs> I want to know from you what behaviors yeah. I can see in you yep. that shows me you're living those values. So I, can you speak to that? Like, how, yeah. how do you help them go from abstract to very concrete? So that they know if they're in alignment with those values. Yeah, I love that. We, we were just having this conversation uh, at our, my, our company's uh, strategic planning session on Monday because we're actually taking it all the way, but we're coming out of COVID. We're, we're looking at our business model and how we're engaging our clients differently. We, we've taken it, stripped it all the way back to uh, reworking our mission statement, our vision statement, our culture manifesto, even looking at our core values. And this is something we've learned by and teaching our clients as well. We did the exact same thing. Like, well, integrity. I'm like, what does that mean? What does that mean to you? What does that mean in your organization? Accountability. Okay. That could mean a lot of different things. So you strip it down two more layers. And this is probably what you do, you know, with your clients, you're like, okay, how, why you're asking them questions to really, or most of the time they can't get past the first ones. Accountability, <laughs> integrity, you know, it's the stuff that sounds good. You know, <laughs> anybody yeah. who wants to, you know, have those, <laughs> those set of values, but, but as we all know, anything important has to be managed and measured and even values. And if we can't measure our behavior against those values, they're not really core values. They're not really authentic. They're just something on the wall or on a piece of paper or on your website or in your head, something you tell other people at a cocktail or, or in your therapy session or your coaching session. And, you know, so you have to drill down to, let's say it's integrity, list two or three supporting behaviors that you expect of yourself and others and be as specific as possible. So we can clearly define what integrity means to you or to this team or to this organization. And then the third layer is accountability mechanisms. That's what we call them. But like, okay, how are we going to measure each of these behaviors? How will we know when we deviated? How will we know when we're on track? How will we know what the contingency is to course correct? Or we need to get some feedback or, or, or do whatever we need to do. You know, it takes it to that third level of measurement. So we know nice. we can measure performance. So on a team, if one of our core values is integrity, I know how to measure it's part of my performance measurement system. It's how I attract talent. We onboard talent with that information. We develop talent. We talk about the values all the time. Reward behavior based on values. <clears throat> Use coaching moments based on those values. Uh, engage with clients based on those values. That's another thing was when, from an external standpoint, it's good for brands to be open about their values because you want to engage in relationships whether business relationships or personal relationships with organizations or people that have at least a similar set of values. Again, mm -hmm. if you don't, those relationships never last. And so again, being measurable. So supporting behaviors, clearly defined and accountability mechanisms for distinct measurement of those behaviors. 
I love that. That's awesome. So you, you talk about all that we've talked about and much more in Embrace the Suck. Um, first of all, where can people find this book as well as your other book? And also, you know, I know that you're a public speaker, you're a consultant to corporations. So where, where can people learn more about that part of your life and work? Sure. Uh, the book is on all uh, online retailers, most brick and mortar retailers. So pick it up on Amazon or whatever your preferred uh, digital retailer is. Um, more about uh, me and our organization, most importantly, is takingpointleadership.com. Uh, obviously, it goes into different uh, case studies, clients, uh, you know, service offerings, things like that. But um, yeah, been a real pleasure to chat with you. Always good to see you, brother. And yeah, uh, see you, sure we'll do it again. Yeah. Definitely, definitely. Well, congratulations on the book. Uh, let me encourage everyone who's watching, listening to obviously audible.com. You want to listen to it or Kindle or buy the physical copy of the book. And also, let me encourage you if you're looking for a speaker, Brett, you're an awesome speaker. I've actually seen you live <laughs> giving a talk. And then obviously, you're a consultant as well. So, look into yes, his work there. Let's bring back the live events. <laughs> there you go. All right, buddy. Good to see you, man. All right, brother. Good to Take see care. you. Appreciate you.